Good day, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome back to the Fresh Frozen Southerner podcast. My name is Jay. Happy Friday, and I hope all is well. Uh, First, let me apologize. There's a lot of background noise today. I generally try to record when there's not a lot going on, but I needed to record now versus any other time. Uh, So we've got a lot of traffic going by on the street, and there's a guy about three houses down mowing the lawn. So unfortunately, there's going to be a good deal of background noise in this episode. I can do a noise reduction that cleans a lot of it up, but it doesn't get everything. So the sound's probably not going to be great on this show. Uh, There's two things that I need to talk about Monday's show. Uh, Number one, at one point I said Black Monday, not Black Tuesday. Uh, The only thing I can think of is your mind automatically goes to Black Friday now, and then there's Cyber Monday, and I guess I was thinking about that. Uh, But the stock market crash in 29 happened on a Tuesday. It's called Black Tuesday, not Black Monday. And the other thing is I kept teasing something about Burgess and Park's belief, and then I forgot all about it by the time I got to the end of the episode. Uh, Burgess and Park's big study on urban socialism, yeah, urban sociology, was that the slum areas in cities exist because of where they are in the city, and they believed that whomever you put there, that would still be the slum area. Uh, That is an insane statement. Uh, These are educated men, presumably intelligent men, that apparently believed in, like, uh, tainted ground, that the buildings in an area is what causes the slum area to be run down. Now, it's true that you can have very dilapidated neighborhood, but that's not going to cause the people there to be poor. Uh, You're going to have poor people moving there because that's going to be an inexpensive place to live. Now, unfortunately, the reality is is that a lot of times poor people are poor for a reason. I don't mean that as judgmentally as it sounds, but it is, a lot of people ignore it, but it is a fundamental fact of people's personal choices is what leads them into the position they find themselves in life. We have all heard the saying, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer. I believe it was Dave Ramsey that said this. I could be wrong about that, but... Uh, Somebody once said, you know, the rich get richer and the poor get poorer because the rich keep doing the things that made them rich and the poor keep doing the things that made them poor. And the neighborhood that they live in or where they grew up in does not really affect where they're going to wind up in life. Um, You see it in your own life. A good example from my personal life is working at car dealerships. Sometimes people would come into the service lane in a five-year-old car And I would get into that car to move it, and it would be immaculate. It would look like it just rolled out of the factory. Hell, sometimes you'd get in a car five years old, and it would still sort of have that new car smell. The person has just kept it so clean that the new car smell hasn't worn out of it. And then the next person that comes in in the same model car the same year, and they can't get a passenger in a car because there's so much trash, and the upholstery is covered in stains, and it's you know it's all you can do to make yourself get into that filthy car. The only difference between those two cars is one owner took the time and the effort to keep his car clean and not let a bunch of trash build up and has really taken care of it, and the other person just doesn't care. It's a car, they get in it, and it takes them where they want to go, and that's all they care about. Another good way to think about this is you always hear about how terrible the schools are in the inner city and that the suburb schools, they have much better test scores and everything. Well, if you took the students out of the worst-performing school and moved them to the best-performing school and vice versa, guess what would happen? The very next day, 
the worst school would suddenly have the highest test scores and the best school would suddenly have the worst because it's the students that go to these schools. Now, I'm not saying the students that go to the bad schools are stupid. That's not what I'm saying at all. But if you live in a poor neighborhood, most likely both of your parents have to work a lot of hours. Maybe the father's not in the home anymore. There's a lot of things that kind of stand in the way of that student having people teaching them that doing their homework is important, forcing them to spend time on their schoolwork. You know, a lot of people say it's the system, it's the people in the system that cause these issues. That's not a popular way of looking at things, but it is the truth. I'm not trying to hurt anybody's feelings, but I don't like pretending that something is different than what it is. You can't fix a problem if you don't address the issue that's causing the problem. You may hurt a few people's feelings, but you need to attack the situation as it requires you to, reality on reality's terms. You know, about 10 years ago, maybe it was about 15, I was watching some one of those hour-long investigative journalist shows. And the reason I was watching it is they had a 20-minute segment that was in a part of West Virginia that was close to where I live. Now, they were interviewing a family. They lived in this very run-down small house. Uh, there was garbage in the front yard. The house was filthy. It was piled up with junk and clutter. And the point of the journalist perspective on this was that the system had failed these people. You know, they look at how these people have to live. This is what people in impoverished areas have to deal with. Well, I was watching that show and I'm thinking, okay, there are four adults living in that house. There were no young children. Uh, It was the mother, the father. They were both early 50s, I'm going to say. Their 20-something daughter and her 20-something husband. You had four able-bodied adults living in this house. None of them worked. They were all on welfare. So they were they had all day every day. Why can't they clean up the house? You can go down to the dollar store and get everything you need to clean that house from top to bottom for $10. And you've got four healthy adults that are there all day long. You can't get the garbage out of your yard. You can't scrub the house down. You can't find a place to pack all that crap away that's laying in the living room floor. Those people did not live in squalor because the system failed them. They lived in squalor because they could not be bothered to pick up a broom and a dustpan and clean their house. And if that's the way they want to live, that's totally fine. It's their house. They can sit there and all that clutter and dirt if they want to. Don't go on TV saying that it's somebody else's fault. You're sitting right there. Clean your damn house. Now, as I said in last week's episode, Saul Alinsky did not agree with Burgess and Parks on this, and that's to his credit. Uh, Saul Alinsky very strongly believed that it was the members of the community that made the community what it is, and that is one of the things that I completely agree with him. He's absolutely right. It's the people that live in these neighborhoods that make it either a nice place to live or a horrible place to live. And I've ranted about that enough. Let's get into the book, The Rules for Radicals, published in 1971. Now, my intention was to do the prologue and chapter one. I assumed that the prologue would be a few pages. It turns out the prologue is a bit windy. It's about 20 pages, and there were quite a few things in there that I wanted to address. So we're just going to do the prologue today. And one of the things I want to talk about, I keep getting struck by the dichotomy of the things that Saul Alinsky would write about. He says things 
that sound like it's right out of today's progressive left playbook, and then he'll say something that I just can't imagine anyone on the far left ever saying into a microphone or putting down on paper. Uh, One good example of this is he speaks very patriotically about this country. Um, He does not want to tear the system down. He wants to change the way the system works, but he believes that America, the American freedom, the American democracy is a good thing. And he speaks very highly of this country. He speaks very highly of the flag. And in fact, uh, at one speech, he said, you know, people attack the flag and it turns people off to the radical movement when they should be saying that the flag is a symbol of freedom and it's the way the system is run now that has betrayed the flag, not the other way around. As somebody mentioned that, you know, in the 60s, no other radical was speaking in those patriotic terms. Now, I am keeping just a little bit of my mind open to the fact that this was the 50s and 60s and we were going through the Red Scare and it was the heart of McCarthyism. And maybe this was a little bit of a smokescreen to keep too much scrutiny coming his way. But when he talks about these things, he sounds very genuine. Again, that does not mean it's true, but I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. I'll Maybe my opinion will change as I get further into the book. But Saul Alinsky does seem like he genuinely loved America. Now, that would not be out of line a lot of times the people that you know, immigrants to this country, or like in Saul Linsky's, his parents immigrated to this country, fleeing something. I'm sure Russian Jews usually left Russia because they had to. And generally, those people are very appreciative of the freedom and the safety that America gives. It seems like that's lost now. Um, now, if you talk to somebody who is an immigrant, they still feel like, like I worked with that young man who immigrated here from the Dominican Republic. He absolutely loves America, and he is incredibly proud that he had earned his citizenship. And it just gives you hope for the future when you talk to somebody like that. It's not something you hear a lot, and it's a little bit old-fashioned maybe, but it sounds good to talk to somebody that loves this country and loves the freedom that it provides. Okay, but as I was reading through the prologue, um, one of the things that I took away from the prologue is that it seems like he is aiming all of this book squarely at 18 to 25-year-olds. He's constantly referring to, you know, the young in the movement and keeping young people. In fact, at one point he said, you know, we have to keep from pushing people to the right and to the Republican Party. He said they may make that change on their own, but let's not let it happen by default. And a lot of what we see from the progressive left now is they're trying to convince the young that they have to fight the system. Young people are very fertile targets for this tactic because young people feel powerless already. And if you think you know, think back to when you were 20 years old, you had spent your entire life being told what to do by your parents, being told what to do by school teachers, being told what to do by college professors. Uh, if you're working, which nowadays a lot of 20-year-olds have not worked, you know, you're the low man on the totem pole or the low woman on the totem pole, and you're getting told what to do all the time, and you're doing the worst jobs that are at that place of employment for the least amount of money. Young people feel powerless. And that's part of the reason that the progressive left's agenda kind of sounds attractive to them. But you've got to get those people when they're young enough that they still feel that way before they realize that that's not always how life is going to be. You know, as you get more work experience, as you get more expertise, as you get more college, as you get more training, you're not going to be the low man or woman on the totem pole. You're going to move up the ladder. You're going to start making more money. 
And you can't tell somebody that has made a comfortable life for themselves that they need to fall into this communistic agenda because at that point, you're not telling them, hey, we're going to give you free stuff from people that have more than you. You're telling them we're going to take your stuff and give it to people that haven't worked for 20 years to earn what you've earned. Once people see that they can earn their way out of whatever situation that they don't particularly care for, suddenly they don't need the government to pull them out of that situation. You don't feel powerless anymore. You say, well, no, I'll take care of it myself. That's not what the progressive left wants people thinking. You know, the progressive left, they they always talk about, you know, hope and change. Yes, we can. Well, but then they tell everybody that you can't, well, at least not without them at any rate. And it kind of sets up a strange paradox with the progressive left's motivations for people. You know, they say that they care. They say that they want to help people. But if you depend on people feeling downtrodden to come into your movement, it motivates you not to help them because you've got another election coming up in two years. If those people suddenly are living the middle class American dream, they may not feel like voting for your agenda anymore. So you actually want to keep people down. It's kind of, you know, I've said many times that the progressive left has used the black community uh, since the 70s. You know, they've been saying for 40 years plus that you know they're going to be the black community's best friend. They're going to help them. Well, just ask yourself, has the situation in the inner cities gotten better or worse in those 40 years? Has race relations in this country got better or worse in 40 years? They claim they want to help them, but things get worse and worse and worse. And one of the things that Saul Linsky said in his prologue feeds directly into that. And he was talking about getting people to try to change the system. And he said people that you know, feel comfortable with their lives, they're not going to want to change. You have to make them desperate to change. Direct quote from the book is, They must feel so frustrated, so lost, so defeated, so futureless in the prevailing system that they are willing to forget the past and chance the future. That kind of fits into what I have seen from our society over the 46 years I've been on this planet. Uh, the, he also said, we're talking about a revolution, not revelation. You can miss the target by aiming too high as well as too low. That sort of sounds to me like he's setting up his justification for the quote-unquote useful idiots that you hear all the time. You want people that are doing what they're told, not thinking about what they're being told to do. It's a very cynical way to look at any kind of movement that you have to keep people ignorant and use them to get to your destination. But this is also a system that you know, one of their slogans is, the ends justify the means. And again, that is sort of the inverse of the saying, you know, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. Well, this is kind of coming the opposite way. You can put somebody through hell as long as you're trying to get to a good place. I personally don't believe that doing people that way justifies anything that you do. I don't feel like most people in this country need to have their hand held and told what to do. But that's sort of the progressive left's position. You know, you need us to get you through your life because you are not capable of doing it. Your intellectual elites will tell you how to live and will show you the way that you need to be doing things. And I just don't agree with that. People can take care of themselves. 
if you back off and leave people to their own devices, there will be some people that just simply fail at life's tasks. You'll be amazed how many people find a way to make a life for themselves. If you just leave them alone and tell them you have to take care of it, I'm rooting for you, but you need to do it yourself. And Saul Alinsky would actually agree with me on that. Uh, now, maybe again, this is just stuff he's saying, but I'm until I get further into the book, I'm trying not to form any concrete conclusions. But one of the things Solinsky said about trying to organize a community and dealing with the people in these communities, he says, if I grab you by the shirt collar and say, do this, do that, you're going to resent me. But if you reach that conclusion on your own, it will mean something to you. And again, just a lot of the things he says runs counter to pretty much anything the progressive left believes in this day and age. Uh, one of the big things that stuck out to me from the prologue is he was talking about dealing, again, dealing with trying to organize these communities and talking to people that may not agree with you. He said, one communicates within the experience of their audience and gives full respect to others' values. That is the antithesis of what the progressive left believes today. If you disagree with them, it's because you are probably way below intelligence. You might be inbred. You're probably racist, but you're definitely a horrible person. There is no respect given to others' opinions. You attack someone that has a differing opinion than you because, again, you're more intelligent. So if, you know, if this person was as intelligent as you, they would think the same way you do, which is the exact opposite of what would actually happen. If you're speaking to someone, the more intelligent someone is, the more likely they're going to have varying opinions on things because they think about things more. But it's just more proof in my mind, and, and again, I could be wrong, but I'm probably not, that nobody on the progressive left has actually read this book. Um, there's so many things in this book that just absolutely run counter to what the progressive left believes that you really can't convince me unless somebody starts quoting the book or shows me that they've got a copy that's all dog-eared and worn out. You know, they're just not reading this book. They're you know, sort of invoking his name, and they've cherry-picked some of his beliefs to justify what they're doing. The foundation of any progressive's argument, when you get into it with them, is that they're smarter than everybody else, and everybody should just listen to them, not argue with them. Now, I read a novel several years ago, and... I apologize, I can't remember the name of the novel or who wrote it. It was a work of fiction, and I could have looked up and got the name and to attribute the quote, but I'm going to be honest with you, I simply couldn't be bothered. But in the book, uh, one of the female characters has run in with some recent college graduates that had been radicalized and were you know, sort of causing problems in her town. And I remember this quote very distinctly, I loved it, uh, but she told the four college, well actually they graduated, the four the four people that were causing the issues, uh, she told them, you know, you college students, you sit around in your dorm for four years and you convince each other that nobody has thought about any issue as deeply as you have. That is exactly what's going on on these college campuses. You know, there are a lot of videos on YouTube and on the internet uh, showing people, you know, clandestinely videoing professors giving these speeches where they're preaching all this rhetoric. And, and one thing that they keep mentioning during these speeches and when they're trying to sell this stuff to impressionable 18-year-olds is that this is how intelligent people like us look at the world. You, know, you have to be above the average intelligence 
for you to understand this stuff the way we do. You know, we're we're better than everybody else. That's why we feel this way. Those are tactics that con artists use and cult leaders use. It's psychological manipulation. You're not just telling somebody the truth. You know, you're smarter than everybody else. That's why you agree with me. That's why we look at the world differently. It's this is a psychological tactic that cult leaders and con artists use to fool people into following along. You know, cult leaders will pull people aside and, you know, it's a special person that can understand these teachings the way you do. It's, you know, you're you're a unique individual. You're special because you feel this way. You have this faith. And con artists are telling people that other people fall for this silly stuff and get scammed. You know, people like me and you, we wouldn't see right through that. We would never fall for this kind of thing. You and I are too smart. And then when they screw them over, that person's not looking for it because he has been convinced that he is simply above that. He doesn't have to worry about it. You know, I keep seeing studies and people on Facebook love to post this. You'll see it. Hell, they cover it on the news a lot of times that, you know, such and such person did a study and showed that people that have progressive leanings, it's because they have a higher intelligence. So really, you mean somebody that's convinced that they're smarter than everybody did a study that proved him right? Whew, couldn't see that coming. Yeah, I know this is audio only. You can't see it. Trust me, I've got my shocked face on right now. You know, I I tell you what, all you Facebook keyboard warriors, when you're smart enough to recognize self-aggrandizing bullshit when somebody sticks a hot steaming plate of it under your nose, then you can tell me how smart you are. Because falling for these well-documented and well-researched psychological tricks it does not mean that you're smarter than me. It means that you're more gullible than me. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm going to wrap it up there. Um, I will have chapter one for you coming up shortly. I don't want to do these right back to back to back. I do want to kind of alternate them in a week or maybe three episodes down the road. We will jump into chapter one. Uh, it's been an interesting read so far. Granted, I'm only 20 pages into it. That opinion may change along with a lot of other opinions. But at the moment, I'm actually kind of enjoying reading the book. If you enjoyed the show, I certainly hope you did. I found that very fun. Uh, but if you enjoyed the show, please like, comment, and subscribe. Uh, you can comment at the Fresh Frozen Southerner Facebook page or at FreshFrozenSoutherner.com. I'm sorry, uh, at gmail.com. All right, guys, enjoy your weekend. I will talk to you on Monday, and please have a good one, and I will talk to you soon. Thank you very much.